Good day, listeners. Jonathan Darty here with another edition of the Pure Sex Radio program. You know, before we get into today's amazing conversation with Brandon Showalter, I want to invite you to consider participating in our summer matching gift opportunity. From now until August 31st, when you give any amount to our ministry, your gift will be doubled up to $75,000. So if you'd like to partner with us in reaching and serving even more people in the days and months ahead, double your gift right now at bebroken.org donate. This link will also be in our show notes. And thank you for your partnership in helping individuals and families move from sexual brokenness to wholeness in Christ. As I mentioned, my guest today is Brandon Showalter, and he's a journalist and podcaster with The Christian Post, and he's co-authored the excellent book, Exposing the Gender Lie, with Dr. Jeff Myers. In his role at The Christian Post, he's written extensively on topics of theological interest in the church, including developments of the transgender identity movement and transgender ideology. In our conversation, we discuss how Brandon got into writing on this topic, some of the history and roots of the current transgender movement, the truth about real gender confusion, the war over language, and how Christians can respond to those struggling with the cultural narrative as well as true gender confusion. To learn more about Brandon and to get a copy of his book, visit christianpost.com slash ebook slash gender dash lie. For more resources, visit bebroken.org or check out links in today's show notes. And as always, please rate and review the podcast after listening to help other people find it. Now, let's get to our conversation with Brandon. Well, all right, Brandon Showalter, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jonathan. Good to join you today. Yeah, I'm really excited about this topic, I, if I can even say that, because this is definitely a topic that can be very divisive. It can also be something that, you know, at least in the cultural realm, could get us canceled. Uh <laughs> Lots of different things like that. But we want to talk, I want to talk about this book that you co-wrote entitled Exposing the Gender Lie, How to Protect Children and Teens from the Transgender Industry's False Ideology. Certainly there's going to be more in that than we can unpack in a short podcast, but I feel like this is such a relevant and timely topic. But I want us first to kind of get a little bit of the backstory. Can you tell our listeners and viewers Uh, How did you get into this space and how did you become so passionate about this topic uh, in our culture today? Well, as it happened, seven years ago today, I I walked into my first day during my trial period on at the Christian Post here in Washington, D.C. Had no idea what was before me, um, but this was the day after the Pulse nightclub massacre in Orlando seven years ago. And so I was immediately thrown into reporting on some of those issues, particularly as it was attached to that horrible uh, shooting. And so I'm trying to gauge the Christian response to that terrible event, that massacre. Uh, and that kind of, in an interesting way, set me on a course to reporting on these other gender issues. One of the things that one of my editors said to me soon after I started it, it might have been even during my trial period, was that they didn't have to edit my pieces for tone because I managed to communicate through the Christian Post's theological lens very graciously and truthfully. And so I thought, <clears throat> well, even though it's kind of touchy stuff, if I'm having success here as a newbie journalist, I'll at least continue on this track and see where it all goes. Um, but then I started learning more about what was going on medically. Uh, just sort of one thing led to the other. I was learning about 
proposals in various states and locales to prohibit any kind of counseling that would was not just for unwanted sexual uh, attractions or something, but also to not allow a counselor to explore any kind of underlying issues where if a girl presented with gender confusion, for example, and wanted to uh, go take hormones or undergo a transgender surgery or something that to affirm her body as female would be illegal then under these laws. And I didn't know about the transgender aspect of those, those counseling bans. And then I learned about all of the other medical practices that were going on and had been going on for years. And I just didn't know about it, particularly what the hormone blockers to delay puberty were. And when I learned about those, I was just never the same again. I, I just could not believe that doctors were doing something so monstrous to children and under the pre just, and under the, the fact and, and in pursuit of a lie, the idea that they could somehow become something that they will never be. They were delaying their puberty with chemicals that, are used to chemically castrate sex offenders. They have been. This is a drug, Lupron, which is one of the drugs that is used to treat prostate cancer in men and endometriosis in women. And they were giving it to children off-label for an unapproved, a clinically unapproved, FDA unapproved purpose, gender confusion. This drug's used only for precocious puberty, whereas when a child goes into puberty too early, they will sometimes administer a blocker so that the child can go into puberty at a normal age. And that's a clinically approved reason. But even very recently, the FDA slapped a warning label saying that these drugs called vision loss and brain swelling. So it's a very risky intervention, even for its legitimate purposes. But again, it's never been approved for gender dysphoria, as it's called. And so I just knew that when I learned about that, I couldn't look away. And I realized that this rabbit hole is much more deep and dark than I ever could have imagined. And one thing led to the other, and I found myself on this beat uh, very regularly. It's not the only thing I've done reporting on. I cover a lot of other issues, but that one has been uh, a huge focus. Probably yeah. 60% of my reporting over the years uh, and sometimes more has been devoted to that because I think it's one of the worst medical scandals the world has ever seen. And medical scandals are still medical scandals, even if they're packaged and presented to the public in civil in civil rights and identity nomenclature. But that's what this is. The, the, the desecration and the damage this is doing to young young people was so horrific. And uh, even though the rest of the media is captured, I and the Christian Post refuse to look away. So that's the long answer to your question, but that's how it all yeah, started. No problem. So let's, let's start with just uh, maybe, can you give us a little bit of the distinction between what could be described as, as true, let's say gender dysphoria or just gender confusion versus what can only be described nowadays as like this transgender movement. Yeah. Well, the psychological condition that has been called gender dysphoria used to be known as gender identity disorder. I think the renaming, and there's been some declassification of that condition, of the mental health condition with official diagnostic criteria in the DSM-5, which is the psychiatric man manual that outlines all of the disorders. Um, and so there's some politicization around that mental health condition. But it has afflicted in the past a vanishingly rare, vanishingly small number of children. Almost all are boys. And oftentimes we see um, what often happens in those situations where you see boys with gender dysphoria. It's mm -hmm. with a devouring mother. We see, we often see what are called sometimes Munchausen by proxy moms. Um, 
Not always, but that's that's a that's a big factor. Uh, and so it was a vanishingly rare small condition affecting almost exclusively young boys. But today, teenage girls are the predominant demographic. It's also affecting teenage boys increasingly, but the numbers are, it's just been an absolutely huge increase in young teenage girls who do not have traditional gender dysphoria, but what many have come to believe, and I myself believe this, is the result of a peer contagion, a social contagion, heavily influenced by online uh, sources, social media platforms, where these transgender-identified influencers peddle this kind of information as the pathway to freedom. Girls who are uncomfortable in their bodies, and what girl isn't, <laughs> who come to believe that this is the answer. The Watershed book that outlines all of this it was in 2020 by Abigail Schreier, Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. Many people are familiar with that book because she captured what was going on with this social contagion, and it resonated with so many people. I field phone calls with many parents who will say to me, oh, yeah, I read Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage. It sounds exactly what happened to my daughter. She really mm -hmm. captured it. So these girls are in very real pain, and these boys too. It's a different set of issues that inform their distress. But what's worse, and you see this in the subtitle of the ebook that I co-authored with Jeff Myers, the transgender industry, that was a very deliberate choice to title it as such, is ready to market experimental medicalization, puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and body-altering surgeries to these very, very vulnerable, mentally struggling young people. And uh, they are profiting handsomely off of this experimental medicalization. So it's a totally different ballgame than what was once a very small minority of children who suffer from this distress. Uh, and unfortunately, it is packaged and presented to them in the language of identity, which has great appeal today amid mm -hmm. all of the family breakdown and a generation that's just crying out to be known and loved. Uh, there's many factors, many comorbidities, many influences that are contributing to this uh, unfortunate you know, space we find ourselves in, but that's basically what's going on. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm not so old that I can't remember being a teenager right. and uh, that's just a confusing time for anybody already. Yeah. I mean, there's just the hormone release, all that kind of stuff. Can you talk a little bit about even the distinction between this very uh, real diagnosable condition of gender dysphoria and just the normal confusion that goes on and why would it be to anyone's advantage to leverage that confusion towards irreversible medical treatment. Yeah, I don't know of a single person who enjoyed puberty or the teenage <laughs> angsty years. I mean, there is, it is, it's a weird time for anybody. And so, but, uh, and it is not a conspiracy to say, and I can show you the numbers and the figures and the powerful actors in high places who have sought to profit off of this very hard time that teenagers go through. And because it's packaged in the language of LGBTQ civil rights, very few people have the temerity to object to it because they think it's one thing when it's really not. Um, if it, it doesn't make any sense, as you say, to sort of make it into this other thing where you would wind up irreversibly altered, where if you take blockers and hormones, the combination of those drugs results in sterility, almost a guarantee. 
uh, if you cut off a body part via a surgery, you'll never get it back. There's just the damage is unmistakably obvious there. But these young people who are led to believe that this is the pathway to their truest authentic self, as the lingo goes, they become convinced that this is the solution. And worst of all, there's been an ideological capture of all of the mainstream professional organizations like the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Endocrine Society, all of the counseling organizations, it seems, they are totally drunk on the Kool-Aid, as some say. They are totally captured by this dogma, and no one dares oppose them because the, the money and the power, the, the power of propaganda, the ideological pressure is real and it is ruthless. And so parents are manipulated into going along with this because they're told that their children will commit suicide or are very likely to kill, them, kill themselves if they don't go along. Um, so if, I think people don't like, Jonathan, to think that there are actually people that are that evil that would mm. set like this in motion. But I'm telling you, as one who's been on the line for, on the front lines for seven years, it's absolutely real. They absolutely are coming after your children. They're going to indoctrinate them with impunity. They're going to tell them that it's rooted in science when nothing could be further from the truth. And they won't hesitate to make a referral to a gender clinic where they will then be put on a pathway of irreversible medical harm. So let's actually, let's, let's tackle that for just, Brandon, let's tackle that for just a second. You talked about how they they will defend it with science and yet that's untrue can you talk a little bit about the disparity between what actual science is revealing and what kind of the narrative of the science language and the culture is stating well the quickest way to shut someone down particularly if they are a confessing christian they are a sincere christian is they like to rag on Christians. Oh, you're just a bunch of silly sky daddy worshipers who are into the supernatural, spooky, silly, unprovable stuff. And we have science on our side. So that it's used mm. as a cudgel to abuse people. But if you actually do look at the actual science, <laughs> uh, we know that the vast majority of gender dysphoric young people, those who are truly battling with this distress, if left alone, the process used to be called, the protocol called watchful waiting. Give them enough time. Puberty is somewhat of a cure for this dysphoria. Almost all of them will grow out of it. Almost, they just leave them alone, and they'll they'll work through their issues. Puberty will <laughs> it will really kind of resolve a lot of their stress. Or when you address the other underlying issues, depression, social anxiety, the other mental health comorbidities, all of those things, when you treat those, the gender distress, the dysphoria resolves on its own. Uh, nations are moving away from the treatment protocol where you would administer blockers, hormones, and surgeries. Sweden has recently, the Karolinska Hospital over there, has said they will not use blockers on young people anymore, only under very tight research settings. Finland has also moved away. The Tavistock Gender Clinic, the Youth Gender Clinic, has been ordered to close in England, and they are now, England just very recently prohibited blockers, kind of like how Sweden did, only will be used in clinical research settings. I don't even know what research they're going to do, but they're moving away from this protocol. That's the material point here. Meanwhile, the U.S. and Canada is going full bore into this, and they're making laws to punish people who don't go along with this. It's, it's the wild, wild west over here in the United States. And, but if you actually do reviews of the scientific literature and you actually study the evidence as the state of Florida's medical board did, you find that there's no there there, that the evidence is paper thin for treating children in this way. Um, and moreover, just, just very basically, you don't cut the body to heal the mind. Mm. You don't irreversibly alter somebody's reproductive system and 
that's going to be the pathway to health and vitality. It just makes no sense on its face. But so people need to just kind of train themselves to, to think, okay, if they're gaslighting you with follow the science, well, there's no science going on here by the doctors and the clinicians who push this nonsense on our youth as though it is true, good healthcare. It's not. And, and how, um, how does that deception work on a young person when they are told almost in a way as if they can believe they could truly become another gender? Why is that so dangerous when, in fact, again, the science, biology itself, tells us that that's not a possibility? Well, the answer for that is that it starts very young. When children are learning their reality testing skills in kindergarten first, I mean, the very young children where they were the propagandists of this dogma, and it's everywhere, even in red states, it's just there's no way to escape from it, and it's on their phones if your kids have them. Just when they are learning to know what reality is, this confusion is presented to them as fact. And so they literally don't know how to distinguish truth from falsehood because their categories are, co are so confused from the get-go. So if you can get them that young, you can get them to believe a lot of false information and they won't have, know how to distinguish anything otherwise because they never had the gift or the opportunity to discern the truth and reality. They're, they've been corrupted from the very beginning. It's really scary when you think about just what is being pummeled into their innocent minds because children learn so much by observation, but when you have people in places of authority, such as their teachers or their guidance counselors or online influencers that are actually trying to train them to override their instincts, the confusion abounds. Uh, and so it's also, what is also so insidious is that this often appears in school curriculum under the guise of anti-bullying. And so children who might actually be able to discern the truth or are like at least trying to will be told, no, you can't do that because that's actually unkind to people who might identify as trans or some other gender identity. So it's the, the, the couple, the coupling of this being presented to them as brute fact when they're very young, plus this notion that if they object to it, that it's bullying, that really results in a lot of chaos and confusion. Mm -hmm. In the book, you talk about how this, this whole ideology really attacks language yes. and really twists language. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that and, and how that is actually presented? Well, yes. And in fact, I will reference a column that I just published here at the Christian Post just yesterday, where it, to, to show you how far the language twisting and manipulation goes, the Associated Press Style Guide, which is the gold standard of journalism, of grammar, syntax, how journalists are supposed to you know, have etiquette and the rules of decorum, the Associated Press defines and establishes that for all, all the networks and all the major papers follow it. I don't, <laughs> but they have not only said that um, you are supposed to use preferred pronouns, quote unquote, for if a male wants to be called a she, you're supposed to do that as a matter of courtesy. They have now taken a ver an overtly ideological position to say that you can't even say the word transgenderism because discussing the underlying ideology, the underlying dogma, frames a person's identity as an ideology when it's supposed to be seen as a brute, neutral fact, as just that's just mm. who you are and you're never to question it. So it's essentially a journalism organization calling for the suppression of ideas, which is just outrageous. But I'll, I'll just give you an example. And we begin the chapter on language twisting in Exposing the Gender Lie with a quote from a lesbian feminist activist who spoke at a rally last fall, one of my friends had a free speech rally where she was speaking about these issues. 
but she says it very plainly. It's the best I've ever heard it. The word trans has one function, and that is to falsify reality. As soon as you have a word that can institute the lie that a man is a woman, everything is reversed. If you can make the public believe that words have the opposite meaning than what they have always had, you can make them believe anything. And so if you wonder why there's such massive distrust of public health authorities and of the media, it's the language manipulation. They keep everybody confused. Meanwhile, the ideological, you know, dogmatic people who want to further this, you know, this creed move the proverbial ball down the field. Everybody's still trying to figure it out because our very means of communication has been warped beyond recognition. And I... We quote the French revolutionary Voltaire in our book, and you know I'm not a fan of the French revolutionary philosophers, and he was not a good man. But one thing he said was, "Those who can make you believe absurdities can make you twist, can make you believe atrocities, can make you commit atrocities rather." Mm-hmm. And to that, I would just add that well, if you can, there's no better way to make someone believe in an absurdity than by warping our very means of communication into something that's utterly unrecognizable. If you can twist our language and you can manipulate our language, you can do lot of damage very quickly. So Brandon, um, one of the other things that I wanted to ask you about, because I, I mean, we can go on and on about all of the things that are uh, dangerous and, and disheartening about, about this. Uh, you even talk obviously about how this has been captured by institutions and all kinds of things. And we're certainly going to invite people to get the book because that's where they can get a lot of this more detailed information. And it's but, great. But yeah, exactly. Which is awesome. Um, but I really want to talk about how are we as Christians to respond to this? But I want to start with this. What are the what are the ways that Christians can respond that are actually harmful and not useful to this whole dialogue? I think one of the most harmful things they can do is to stay silent about it and just hope that by being kind that the problem will go away and that they will somehow figure it out on their own. I'm tremendously dismayed to see pastors not being willing to courageous or they'll just they'll caveat things to death or they'll just want to not stay away from the issue. Or maybe they think that the church didn't respond well to the marriage debate when that was going on. And so they need to take a different approach here. And their approach is to be basically silent. I think that's so destructive. I am not of the view that it's ever a good idea to uh, go by someone's stated pronouns if they want to go by opposite pronouns because it's not compassionate to participate in a lie. I think that's very damaging. And I, I will add one caveat to that statement and just say that I did interview a detransitioner one time who somehow her church decided to love her through her process and every once in a while they would use her pronoun once in a while, but it was stated from the beginning their pastors made it clear, we're not okay with, we're going to, we want you to get to the place where you're integrated with your femaleness. This was a female detransitioner, for example. And so that from the outset, they were said, look, we're going to walk you through this, but they, they weren't willing to go along with it, even though they sort of used a pronoun here and there in her journey, which that's the most that I will say. And I, you maybe have to make those hard calls on a case by case basis, but as a general rule, I don't believe that it's ever helpful to affirm those pronouns. Um, don't ever, and just don't trust the experts. Pastors need to see clearly that this is a medical scandal. This is what, this is a brutal scourge. And, um, and this, this demands a prophetic witness. Uh, it, it demands, the hour demands boldness because there are families. I don't even have to, you know, anywhere that you live, there are families suffering. 
uh, often in silence with this movement as, as to how it has invaded their lives and upended them. And if pastors aren't going to, or Christian leaders are not going to engage that, what are we even doing? Because uh, we need to be the hands and feet of Jesus to these hurting people because this is wreaking havoc on so many young people's lives. Um, I, I just don't, don't, don't play nice with it. Don't think that this is just going to go, going to go away because it's entrenched in all of our institutions. And so they have to understand that they are among the few that are the bulwark of resistance against this. Yeah. Now I know that we've got people listening just based on the statistics. Uh, I know we've got people listening that they're in personal connection in some kind of way with people who are either openly struggling with this, people who have, are considering transitioning or people that are maybe even transitioned. Um, how, let's, let's bring it really down to the personal relationship level. How would you um, encourage and maybe even um, advise a, a Christian who is trying to love their neighbor as we are instructed by Christ in that kind of a situation? I think they need to, you know, if they want to really love their neighbor and they want to show true compassion, the word compassion literally means suffer with, with suffering. And so if they want to have compassion, they're going to need to run toward that suffering. If you know of a family that has been uh, shattered by this scourge, and that is a word that I hear from parents who call me, that's not being hyperbolic. Those parents feel tremendously alone, that there's no one that can talk to. They need as much counseling as their troubled children probably do because no parent could be prepared for something like this. This just came on the scene and swept their children away and everything they tried to do is undermined by all of the professional institutions around them, places where they thought they could get some help and it only served to worsen the problem. Mental health professionals, psychiatrists, therapists, counselors, the few good ones are very hard to find because if you walk into just about any medical facility these days, they are very likely to put your child on the fast track toward this experimental medicalization. It's that bad. But Christians need to have compassion on these families and be willing to be there for them and stand with them so they don't feel so alone. And if people don't know what this is like or they don't know where to even start, I would very much recommend that they go to deadnamedocumentary.com. Uh, this is the film profiles three such families that were upended, like I keep saying, that have been torn apart by this movement when this medical uh, scandal invaded their homes. Uh, and it, it's kind of an intimate portrait glimpse into their suffering that you would never know about. It's kind of a fly on the wall look into what this is really all about. And it gives you a very sympathetic lens to the struggles that we haven't heard. You won't read their stories in the mainstream press. You won't hear about them. It's not convenient to their pro-trans narrative that they, that they adhere to very rigidly. So go to deadnamedocumentary.com and you'll see what I mean. I was honored to be an expert contributor in that film, uh, small fee to watch, but it's very much worth seeing. That'll give you a taste of their suffering and I think will inform whatever action you may take to families in your community. But we need to hear from those voices because we haven't so much yet. Yeah, that is great. Um, 
Now, before we wrap up our time together, I wanted to uh, ask you to let our listeners and viewers not only know where they can get the, the book, but just as you're thinking through what would be the, the most important thing that you would want those who are listening to this podcast to really come away with, because this is a really heavy conversation. It, I mean, I know a lot of Christians that they feel defeated, they feel depressed, they feel uh, completely at a loss for knowing how to live in the culture right now that's dealing with this. So what would you want to share with them as a hopeful message? Um, I don't think I could do this work, Jonathan, if I didn't have a supernatural hope that God in his infinite power and providence was going to, in a in an undeniably supernatural way, dethrone this wickedness. And I believe in the power of prayer. I believe that the intercession of the saints can uh, dethrone this iniquity in the realm of the spirit. Um, and so non-Christian listeners may not understand anything what I'm saying, and they think I sound like a cuckoo bird, but I believe in the power of prayer. And I do believe that this, this evil is going to, is to going to come down. I don't understand the timing, God's timing. I think it's the hardest part of following Jesus is understanding the timing, but I very much believe in the depths of my soul that the Lord Jesus Christ loves children and he doesn't take too kindly when you put them in harm's way. He has very harsh words for people. I'd be investing in millstones. Maybe if there's millstone companies, you know, consider that a stock tip. So if they still even make them, because the, the people that are disfiguring and brutalizing children in this way, I don't think there's a millstone heavy enough for them. It is a, it's, it is a hard you know, time to live in the culture, but commit to the place of prayer. I just get... Get, in, get into your prayer closet and storm the heavens and believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is, is going to war for these children and for these families and that he is moving even. He makes a way where there seems to be no way and just I believe it's going to come down. I'm, I'm mindful of the Apostle Paul's words in 2 Corinthians that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God for the tearing down and destruction of strongholds. And gender ideology might be a pernicious stronghold these days, but it's no match for the blood of the Lamb. And I'm going to stake my confidence and my hope in the precious blood of Jesus and believe that that has never lost its power and it never will. Um, so keep praying, keep believing, keep your eyes on the Lord, and don't budge, stand firm. And we will see great and glorious things as his kingdom continue as, as his kingdom continues to advance. Amen. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I I'm in total agreement on that, and we definitely would love to get our audience, uh, you know, committed to praying in this way. So, where can they go to get a copy of the book? And the good news, like you said, it's free, That's which great. is really awesome. Uh, we have it at thechristianpost.com slash ebook slash gender hyphen lie. Summit Ministries, since I co-authored it with Summit Ministries President Jeff Myers, it's at summit.org slash protect, I believe, but you'll see links to it there. It is a free download. We wanted to make it free for pastors, lay leaders, youth ministers, anybody who works with youth and young adults. Um, it's got a frequently asked questions appendix in the back, but it's five chapters. It'll just give you a a thorough but succinct overview of what this ideology is and how it functions and the entrenchment in our institutions, how it twists language, all of that, why we believe it's a medical scandal and why we as Christians must respond with courage. Um, and again, I would just urge also everybody to, again, check out deadnamedocumentary.com. That'll give you a glimpse into what this is like for families. Um, 
And on Spotify, Christian Post did a podcast series. The first season was, it's, it's called Generation Indoctrination Inside the Transgender Battle. I am the host. I, it's a big project I worked on. Season one takes you through the journeys of what this is like for children in the school settings. And the bonus episode is what this is like for women in prison who are now forced to be incarcerated with men because of this ideology. And season two is the audio version of our ebook that is the free download. So uh, bonus, episode, bonus episode of season two is an interview with Taylor Reese, the filmmaker of Dead Name. So there's plenty of resources, Christian Post, we will not relent in giving this issue the coverage it deserves. Yeah. Well, thanks, Brandon. You know, I, uh, I've, I've read up a lot on this subject just because of the work that I do. And I have to say, I just want to commend you and Jeff for what you did on this, because in my view, this is like one of the most succinct, but thoroughly accessible and useful uh, books that I've read on this. I feel like it's kind of a one-stop place to go to say, hey, listen, if I want to get a really great overview, but also really understand what this is all about and how to respond well, <laughs> I feel like you guys have done a really good job in this book. So I appreciate that. We have over 100 footnotes and many of those are to secular sources too. So if people want to do further reading, just check out those end notes. Yeah. Well, Brandon, this has been a great conversation and I'm sure this kind of conversation will be ongoing and we want to invite more and more in the church to be part of this dialogue because it's going to be necessary. So thank you for being part of the, the show today. Thank you, Jonathan. So good to be with you. Yeah. Now, listeners, we're going to be uh, putting all of those links that Brandon shared in the show notes. And so please be sure to check all of those out. And we're so glad that you've been with us. And we do look forward to seeing you back here again next time on the Pure Sex Radio program. Take care. Pure Sex Radio is paid for by Be Broken Ministries. Visit us online at puresexradio.com.